Happy Monday. How's it going, everybody? It's going well. How are you doing, Joe? Good, good. Hey, what's up? Welcome, Ethan. Ethan. Uh, yeah, you guys are actually in the uh, kind of the same locality right now. So We're not too far from each other. Yeah. yeah. Where are you right now, Matt? Um, I'm close. To, I'm in New Jersey, close to Pennsylvania. I'm like 50 miles from you, nice. probably. Nice. So, yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, anyway, you guys should uh, go hang out um, while Matt's out there. I think he'll be out there for... Um, a for a bit so yeah i'll good. be out here yeah. for a couple weeks um at this point i'm sick with something or at least i feel like i have a cold or something mm. like that. yeah <laughs> so i won't be all go meet this. up in person and do this <laughs> yeah. that's like oh i feel sick i'm gonna hold off on that <laughs> let's yeah, hold off never mind. let's do that <laughs> cool ethan uh for people who don't know who you are do you want to give a quick intro and there's my dog um just <laughs> lounging <laughs> um <laughs> She likes Ethan. <laughs> uh, so, so I'm Ethan Aaron. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Portable. Uh, I've been working in the data world since probably 2016. Uh, I was at a startup called Arbor, um, building dashboards, uh, got acquired into LiveRamp, started our business intelligence function there, worked in M&A in the data integrations ecosystem. And then we started Portable about two years ago. Uh, and we're an, we're an ELT tool. We focus on helping people connect all their business data into their data warehouse, but specifically the long tail of systems. So we don't support Salesforce, MySQL, Postgres. We support all the tools that you can't find a solution for uh, anywhere else. Hey, Framp, that company sounds really familiar. Um, did that spawn other startups as well? So there are a ton of LiveRamp. So Arbor was the startup we were at. We got acquired in a LiveRamp. Yeah. Arbor alone, there are... There's Estuary, which is a streaming data company. There's <laughs> there's uh, us, and then there's another. Have you met the other Turnery company? There's a company called Turnery that's a that's a FinOps company. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Matt, uh, so Brian Sook yeah. was was tell, asking about that. It's like, oh, is it, I love your product, and I was like, uh, thanks. I don't think we have. <laughs> we haven't them, built but... it yet. But, uh... <laughs> thanks, so that's, that's just Arbor, and then LiveRamp um, has spawned off a number of other companies as well. The other one in our space, directly in our space, is Airbyte. Um, That's so, what I thought. Um, yeah. they're, they're also ex live rampers, and, and I was catching up with Michelle and some of the team over there cool. uh, last week at, at Snowflake. Nice. How was Snowflake? Did you go to Summit? How was it? It was great. Um, a ton of people that, like, it's been two years, uh, if, not, if not longer at this point, and being able to actually put faces to the names of all the people I've met either through cold outbound or meeting on LinkedIn or, or elsewhere. It's, it was just a great place to actually meet people in person that I feel like I've been talking to now for forever. Right. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting. Like the, uh, the last couple of years of just, I think everyone's grown their friend network by a ton, but uh, I don't think a lot of people have met each other yet. So it's, it's uh, I guess what these uh, conferences are for. So. It's kind of the norm though. Like it, it's yeah. weird because a lot of the yeah. people, that I've met and I've either like done deals with or um, other stuff going on. It's like, it's the norm. Like I, I no longer think about it as like, Oh, I, I never met that person in person. It's just, it's happening now. It is. It's happening. Uh, something else is happening too, which is uh, you make a lot of content. Uh, you put a lot of posts out. Um, I try my best. Me, uh, what's that? I try my best. It's, it's, it's really for personal entertainment more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. I think one one thing we want to talk about today is uh, yeah this post. Um, see if I can bring it up here. Yeah, um, yeah. You're talking to some people at Snowflake Summit apparently, um, and uh, you lead off with saying the modern data stack is dead. Uh, let me see right here. So, um, what what uh what prompted this? Um, and what what are your thoughts around the modern data stack? And then what before we get into this. Yep. What is the modern data stack? Let's start with a, let's start with sort of a baseline definition. Um, what totally. what is a, what's that I modern think, data stack? I think everyone has their own interpretations, and I and I don't go off of kind of a formal definition, being like that's that's what's dead. What I think about when I think about the modern data stack being dead is the idea that you can decide one day that you're going to have that you're going to turn your company into a data driven company and buy three tools to do so, or buy five tools to do so. It's this idea of like a magic wand that allows you to go from not having a data stack or some legacy on-prem data stack to a cloud-hosted analytics environment with ELT, a data warehouse, and a visualization tool, and you're done with the data stack. Like today, that's not the case. Like there's too many trends going on. There's too many changes taking place right now where I, I, the, the image I think of when I think about the modern data stack are the partnership slides that kept hitting LinkedIn and, and elsewhere 
four years ago, where it's like, hey, this is the ELT tool, this is the warehouse, this is the visualization tool, someone just implemented the modern data stack. And it's like, it doesn't look like that anymore. Like it's, there's a bunch of different things that people should be thinking about when they think about building out their data capabilities and, and the journey. Um, and it, it no longer represents what people need to do to actually use data inside their organization. I tend to agree with that. I think that the, the, the what comes to mind for me that with the modern data stack is the, um, a few attributes, right? So cloud native, um, so Redshift spawned this uh, 10 years yeah. ago, actually. So there's an argument to be made that the word modern should be removed um, just for that. Uh, and then, um, you know, SaaS based as well, right? So, and, and modularity, so simple plug and play. I think all these attributes, um, and, and I think to modern data stack's credit, what it did is it democratized these sorts of tools for everybody, right? Because before, if you wanted to spin up a data warehouse, um, good luck uh, negotiating that contract with you know, Oracle, Teradata, or whatever the incumbents um, you know were at the time. It was just a much different world, and um, so that, that I think that was the one thing that really um, you know changed things. And data, you know, data wasn't this hot, sexy thing back in that time. I mean, it was still very much. Um, uh, it was just cost prohibitive and not that too many people are doing it. So I think to its credit, what it did is open the doors for a lot what, of people. What percentage data. of companies do you think were using the pre whatever came before the modern data stack? Like what, what penetration do you think we saw then? And what do you think we see up until now with the modern data stack uh, in terms of, I don't know. I don't have any hard numbers. So I don't want to yeah. commit to an, an answer. I can make stuff up, but yeah. uh, <laughs> maybe Matt, do you have an idea on this? I mean, what I'd be more interested to look at is just the revenue thresholds where you started to see these tools, right? And I think that was one of the really big changes. So the interesting thing about the modern data stack concept is that it reached across scales. In other words, all of a sudden, like Joe was saying, it was democratizing. And so small companies that had never thought about having data warehouse had access and also really big companies making billions of dollars, this stack made more sense than what they were using before because it was far yep. more cost efficient. But I would also argue that the modern data stack was always kind of oversold in the sense that, okay, great, we now have access to the tools, but they didn't remove the need for engineering if you really wanted good quality data. That didn't mean that you necessarily with this new stack needed to have people building Hadoop clusters and such, but you still needed people who worried about ingesting data, data quality, building reporting. And I, I suspect there was a lot of disappointment. I think we saw some of it where people brought in these tools and they really didn't deliver because you just ended up with really messy data that didn't give you actual insights. And so maybe that's another kind of theme here. These are great tools, but like there's more to the story than just like importing a bunch of tools and turning, hitting the on switch and hoping that you're going to get quality data out of the other end. Totally. The other, the, the other thing you just mentioned was cost. And mm -hmm. I think to yeah. your point earlier, it was cost prohibitive to get started. Yeah. And it's like, great. Like you need to have a ton of revenue just to even start investing. Now it's like, Totally, you can stand up some of these SaaS-based applications to build your modern data stack, and it's cheap initially, but then it can become unbelievably expensive and very, very quickly, not just from a SaaS vendor perspective, but also headcount and people. Yeah. I've seen teams that are 10 individuals, three ELT tools, at least one data warehouse, multiple da like visualization tools, governance, and like you're investing millions of dollars like passively, like at least like. 10 years ago, it was like, you are making a proactive investment in this. Today, it's this like very easy way to keep investing money. And it's one of those things where you should know what you're getting your, you should know what you're signing yourself up for. A lot of times that can be worth it. A lot of times it, it might not be. And then the other part is like, we need a simpler journey to actually do this. Like we need a simpler way for people to get started with data, not only from a technical perspective, but from a cost perspective efficiently and then evolve as their needs mature into something that um, could be millions of dollars, but people know that that's, that's what they want and why. Interesting. So kind of bring it back to the, the uh, topic. I mean, why, why is the modern data stack dead? So what, what I've been, like, I talked to a lot of people, a lot of vendors, a lot of practitioners, and what's happening is I think everyone's been using it as a catch-all for everything taking place in data for the last few years. And you have the stream, the, the change data capture streaming companies being like, are we part of the modern data stack or are we something different? You have kind of observability, reliability, all these other capabilities where it's like, you don't stand up your modern data stack with a governance tool. Like that's, that's not the, the point, but you very quickly need it thereafter. So it's like, where, do, where does the line get drawn? And then you have this other kind of 
emergence of tools that I, I think are fascinating, unbelievably valuable, like Mozart Data and Kabula and Y42, where you could call them a modern data stack in a box, but like the modularity that you expect and like all the contracts you expect when you pay for all the vendors yourself disappears, but they make it easier for people to access data. So I, I think it's turned more into a journey. And when you talk to any of those companies, they all call like have been reluctantly calling themselves modern data stack companies, but with like a big question mark at the end, like, are we part of this or is that just us saying modern data stack? And in reality, everyone's mind keeps going back to the slide with five trans snowflake and looker mm -hmm. from yeah. 20, 2018. Um, and I, I think that's the part where a lot of people are looking at it as like, yeah, we're all, it's a data stack still, but like there, there are things taking place now that, that are, that are evolving. Interesting. What are what are what are some of the, the key things that are evolving from that 2018 slide? Because I remember seeing that too. Um and it, and, it, and it almost seemed like the vendors had put a stake in the ground, like saying, This is a modern data stack. And this it was, is us. It was genius. Like from a oh, partnership, it was from a partnership, go to market perspective, it was genius and it worked. And what they were tapping into was instead of, hey, you need millions of dollars to invest in standing up a data stack. Anyone with someone that wants to run a data team can buy these three tools, their SaaS-based applications, and stand up a off-the-shelf solution. It's three tools, but it's still off-the-shelf solution. I think the things that are changing nowadays with the advent of analytics engineering and with the advent of stream processing, I think what you're seeing is there's kind of the core. There's ELT, data warehouse visualization. You want analytics. That's a basic way of getting it. And then there's things upstream of that people that don't have a head of analytics, people that don't know SQL, but nine, let's say I'm making up numbers here. Let's say 90% of companies don't have a head of analytics. We need solutions for that. We need a way of drawing them into using data to make decisions. And I think videos like this, like content from like the Seattle data guy, like helps educate people about data. We need that. That's kind of all the way at the top of the funnel. Like I don't think that existed in 2018 from the sense of like, there, there wasn't all the demand for learning about data. The second piece is like, how do you get started before you buy the modular stack? And that's where kind of the, the data stack in a box tools come into play. Then you have the, the, base, the, the baseline that you expect, the ELT data warehouse visualization layer. But then it gets, the other thing we've added is like, it's more advanced. It can get a lot more advanced than that. Reverse ETL, if you want to operationalize your data, entire applications built on top of your data warehouse stream processing, data observability, governance, et cetera. What if you want to deploy everything open source because you're a healthcare company or a finance company? Um, so I think it's the centerpiece is still the same. It's still build some dashboards using data, but it's a much, much longer journey. And we need to be aware as a ecosystem of how do we shepherd people through that so that anyone can, can get the tooling and the, and the solutions they need, regardless of kind of where they are in that journey. And I like this discussion of education because I think I think modern data stack was really kind of this term of marketing and it was sold as a magical stack that would solve all your problems. And I think now finally we're starting to recognize that these tools are great, but you have to educate people on just the basics of data <laughs> to make to be successful. Yeah, I mean, it's always been that way, right? It, it, modern right. data stack reminds me a lot of the same marketing that went behind big data. Whereas, you know, as we call it out now, you know, Matt and I do especially, it's like big data is just data. Right. And I think modern data stack is just a data stack at the end of the day. And yeah. it always has been. That's, you know, that the meme of the two astronauts, one with a gun always, you know, always has been like, that's yeah. basically, you know, how I see it. It's just, um, you know, but, but I, as you say, intelligently, the, um, the, the vendors will come up with terms. I mean, that's how you put your stake in the ground. This is marketing. You and I would do the same thing. So, yeah. right. In fact, you are, you postmodern data stack. So the, oh, there you go. Data right. Data. So, uh, <laughs> we come up with a better name. I'm calling myself a postmodern data stack company. Um, but yeah, like the, the big, it's a journey. Like the, the biggest thing that I've, I've, I learned last week, I was talking to Paul over at um, census is like, it is a journey and every, whether it's vendor partner <clears throat> consultant out there shouldn't just come in and say, we're now part of the modern data stack by all of us together. It should be, this is where we help. This is where, like, yeah. I, I, when you're done with that part of the stack, like, loop us in, we'll help you evolve into the next step. And then also be aware that there's probably a time and place where it no longer makes sense for your technology yeah. and your solution, and that you should help data 
practitioners and teams evolve into the next step as well. And I think that's the part where everyone's trying to cram a solution into the landscape of modern data tools, when in reality, it's like, how do you just become part of this journey so that there's enough demand? <laughs> uh, if, if, if we can teach people how to use data, get them started, get them with great technologies and then evolve them into the best in class technologies, there is enough demand for every company out there. Um, the problem is like, we're all, everyone's spending dollars and paying for ads against the same 5,000 people to try and jam more and more tools and more and more like consulting hours into the same, like into a certain, into a certain box. That's a, that's a pretty interesting way of, uh, of putting it too. It's, um, yeah. Cause when I, when I look at, I mean, I, I, every week I'm talking to, you know, dozens of companies, uh, a lot of companies now call up to, um, just pitch ideas on, on the product or help us, uh, or, or, you know, maybe ask for advice on how to, how to promote it or, um, you know, position the marketplace. And, and what I see, there's a lot of sameness. So if you are a vendor that does this, please understand, like, keep your pitch interesting. Like don't fo don't focus on, Oh, we're a modern data stack tooling company. Like that's, um, that's a super boring pitch. It doesn't mean anything. Um, and it, at the end of the day, it's just confusing the point. Like you really need to focus on what's the outcome right of what your product's trying to do this is basic marketing 101 by the way like i don't i'm not a marketing guy and i have to tell you this stuff um it's crazy focus on outcomes focus on what makes you unique um all the stuff that you should be doing but don't don't just do this cargo culting uh modern data stack stuff like it's just it's tired um you know and i, and I think you know i'm ready to move on from from it frankly it's just it's, it's too crowded of a market i just say everybody's trying to pitch the you know buy ads against the same five thousand people it's it's very much true i mean you can go into certain slack groups it's the same kind of thing you know everyone's trying to pitch against who you know x number of slack uh, community members and it's um it's just it's it's impossible for the industry to grow you know if, if you just keep doing it this way so totally i 100 agree i also don't think people one, one of my favorite things about somehow becoming addicted to linkedin over the last few months is the difference between just having an open dialogue about people's problems and goals and objectives versus trying to just ship marketing collateral into the into the ecosystem like i tried that last august i created like what is elt what is a data catalog what are all oh, these yeah. things? and i, I posted that. it to linkedin no one cares like like you might get three people that actually read it and are interested but like if you just go to the if you have a conversation about hey what is your pain point how can i help you understand architecture problems or dashboards like there's a very good chance they don't actually need my product and that's great like i know a lot of other vendors and a lot of other consultants they definitely need right now and i would rather have those conversations because they're just more interesting than hey do you want the elt tool like can do you need this connector like it's 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 it's, it's salesy it's way and it's and it's not it's not fun it's not the challenge that we that we all signed up for when we when we got into the data world. I know Matt signed up to be pitched by vendors on a daily basis. I know that. That's, that's hourly basis. Hourly that's basis. Why I'm here? Come on. Yeah. I mean, I just want more uh, perks coming out of it. You know. I know. Like, I could keep joking. The the, the 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 sad thing about the 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 downturn and everything is like just, I, I I'm really sad about the swag and like we're not going to get oh. as much cool swag. Like we're 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 entering the swag apocalypse. So. What, what was what was it? What was the best swag that you got over the years? Um. Because I I, I, I I think when I get comfortable t-shirts, I really like comfortable t-shirts. I'll rock those for a long time. I still have t-shirts from like almost 10 years ago that I still wear because nice. they're just so awesome. Um, yep. Yeah. So how about you? So we, we went deep into, not deep, we're, we're a two-person company. Uh, so it's easy for us to buy swag. Um, we got, we're all in on Carhartt right now. So we have Carhartt sweaters with our name and, and sitting on the front. And then we got the Carhartt beanies for, for the winter, but we have we have no summer summer swag, so we need some t-shirts or tank tops or coolers or something like that. Please I was really into the mugs. Like uh, Snowflake had this really nice ceramic mug some that everyone said broke, stuff. but I still have mine and I still use it. Google had some really nice water bottles back in the day. Yep. <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. Actually, Dustin here, he has a really good question for you. Uh, yeah, so what does analytics leadership look like post-modern data stack, the people side? Uh, what does the optimal org structure look like uh, who plays point guard totally awesome 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 question dustin um i think it evolves it's kind of it's like anything so you can you a great example so we're, we're a two-person startup um when you think about a startup it's very different objectives than a thousand person company 
when you are the CTO of a startup, you need to ship product and make sure it works in the ecosystem. And it doesn't matter how many pieces and how modular it is for when you have 10,000 people down the road, like it needs to prove its value today. Uh, and then when you're a hundred person company, it's very different. Like you need to be able to manage a team of engineers. You need to be able to manage thousands of users. And it's, it's the same for data. So when you think about it, it depends on where the company is in their life cycle. Number one, if the company doesn't have anything in place on the people side, goal number one is start creating value immediately, hack it together, figure it out, like whatever it is that can get you insights and better, better decision-making quickly, start with that. Um, you should not staff up a six person data team day one, when you're trying to get started, that is a waste of money. You have not <laughs> proven that it works yet. So it's number one, just start adding value over time. Once that starts to work and you see more and more demand internally, or if you're building data products externally, um, then it's build out your team based on the demand that's coming in for your, effectively your product. Uh, a lot of people build data teams with no understanding of who actually cares about what you've built. It should all be, it should all, you should be staffing up or in, investing in more technology because people need more insights and they are making more and more decisions based on what you've built, not because you just want to use cooler technologies. So, so at that point, um, then it comes into, okay, great. How do you build a team of two or a team of three that can accomplish more? And maybe it's generalists. Maybe you just have three people shipping dashboards, or maybe you have two people shipping dashboards and one person automating workflows. Maybe not. Maybe you specialize. Maybe one person's focused on understanding the most important metrics for the business. The other person's focused on infrastructure and data modeling. And the third person is writing code. Um, but from there, then you can expand out it. There, there's some, um, I've seen some 10 person data teams are slightly larger than that, where you have kind of a data science expertise, kind of the, the analytics expertise, someone leading the team, uh, but a lot of it also then ends up in kind of stakeholder management. How do you get involved in the procurement process? Um, because whenever people buy new tools, you need the data. Like if people buy tools, you can't get data from it's, it's a problem. So, uh, I think it's an evolution. I think a lot of people overlook that and think there's a single solution, understand where your company is in the journey and, and focus on kind of the MVP for that, that stage in, in the life cycle. Yeah, and I'll refer to the audience back to, uh, actually I actually had a discussion last week with Jesse Anderson. He wrote an awesome book uh, called Data Teams. I would say, just get it. I, I think no matter what data stack you're using, his book uh, provides a really good blueprint for um, you know how to succeed with uh, structuring your data team along your stage of data maturity and and um, you know your initiatives and so forth. But yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, you do sort of hint at something though, or you did earlier where it, it sounds like there's a bit of team bloat um, with the, the modern data stack, there's a temptation to bloat your team with uh, a lot of analytics engineers. Can you, can you walk us through that, that thought process there? I, so it's pretty remarkable. I've seen, you see posts in various LinkedIn, whether it's on LinkedIn or in DBT or elsewhere, where people come in, they're like, I was just hired as the head of analytics. Is this the right tech stack? And they'll post, they'll be like, I have the ELT tool, the reverse ETL tool, the governance tool, the visualization tool, the whatever. And it's like, and a CDP and they're like, is this the right stack? And at no point do they mention why, like, what is the point? Like, what, why do you need three people? Why do you need 17 tools? Like if you're not going to automate workflows, you don't need a reverse ETL tool. If you don't have a data quality problem, you don't need a data quality tool. If you just pull data from a database and visualize it, you don't need an ELT tool, just query a read replica. So it's one of those things where everything should at every point in time, the data team should have like stamped on their forehead. What is the business problem that we are solving right now? And when you take a new job if, or, or you build out a team or you're trying to hire someone and you don't know exactly what business problem it's for, um, you end up with bloat. And I, I think it's, it's whoever leads the team, it's their responsibility and whoever hires them, it's also their responsibility because the other personal incentive in a lot of this stuff is people love big teams. They love hiring. And they love staffing up with all the cool tools because they can put it on their resume and say they they have a four-person yep. team with all the tools. Um, and it's both their responsibility to understand that their job is business value. And it's also whoever hires them needs to be educated enough about kind of what is truly necessary to, to add value with, with data. Let me ask another related question here. 
Um, and this has more to do with just this massive number of startups in the modern data stack space. So you were talking about bloat. Uh, I think part of that is what I would call fragmentation, where we've sliced the stack into so many tiny pieces. Like oh, just wow. you have a startup that occupies this much, and then you're supposed yep. to buy you know 20 tools. Um, if the market contracts, is that situation going to change? And the other question is, we have you know so many competitors in each of these slices. You'll have like five companies trying to do the same thing. Is that going to change as well? What's your opinion on this? It should. My, 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 like, it, there are a lot of, so I, I posted at some point about it, 2022 was, it's, it was probably 2021 and 2022 is the year of the billion dollar product feature. Like there are a lot of companies that are unicorns that are doing, that have a capability set that should really just be a feature of another product or another company. Yep. The problem with this, and I, and I don't think in the immediate term, it's going to change. I, okay. I think, I think there's too much capital invested in a lot of these companies that, and investor, like for someone to get acquired, I used to work in MA. I was trying to buy data companies. Um, and you need to be able to actually acquire one of these companies and know that it's not going to burn itself into the ground. Um, so it's one of those questions of like, they need someone, in order for someone to be acquirable, they need to, the CEO and, and the board needs to say it's okay. All the investors need to be happy with getting their money out and they need to have, have to sell. And, and today, I don't think a lot of companies have to sell because people have crazy amount of cash. Like the people that did raise at unicorn valuations, like still have cash. Like you, if you raise $200 million and you've already spent it, like that's impressive. Um, but like most companies haven't spent it all. Um, and in that case, it's a question of what does an exit look like and who can even afford, even, even if someone fails, who can afford to buy it? Like they still, they won't sell for pennies. Like they'll, they'll still sell for something or they'll go under. So like, I, I don't see massive consolidation happening. I think what is going to be more interesting is do people start building across the lines? I think in the past, everyone's thought about it as I'm not going to compete in that feature because there's a billion dollar company there. And like, if I do, then they won't partner with me. I think that's the part that's going to change is people looking around to being like, sure, like that used to be a billion dollar feature. Like I can do that, add it to my capability set and offer users a more seamless experience. So I think it should all revolve around the user. I think creating a seamless user experience should be paramount for, for every company out there. For sure. Yeah. And I, I just think that the prisoner's dilemma of, of how this turns out is inevitably um, pink, people will sink to the level of their greed and what they need to do. And so they're, they're, uh, you know, today's partner is tomorrow's um, competitor. And that's oh. inevitably, oh, I've always seen this. I've never seen any, um, you know, gentlemen's agreements, uh, you know, about, oh, yeah, well, you just stay in your lane and I'll stay in mine. Um, you know, that 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 doesn't happen. It, it, and, it, and it shouldn't. Totally. Right? It's, it's stupid. Um, so, actually, Chris Tab has a couple questions here. What's up, Chris? Um, hey, Chris. Did, you, did you get to meet Chris when you were at Snowflake? Briefly, we Briefly. did not. Get, we didn't get nearly as much time as I would have hoped. Oh, he's a he's, he's a great guy. Um, it's kind of a two part question here. Um, first, what are are the are all the capabilities that make a modern data stack dead, or just some? I'm trying to. So, I don't think the capabilities are dead. I think the capabilities need to be thought of as part of a longer journey, and people need to understand that when you buy them, you don't need this square box of six tools all at one point. You need one tool initially, then three tools after that, then eight tools after that. And when you get the eight, maybe you can deprecate two of the earlier features and then 15 tools down the road and maybe you bring things in house so you shut down some of the capabilities as well. So it's one of those things where it's not, I'm trying to think of any capabilities that I would just say should disappear because um, there, there definitely are things that probably are, are not, not necessary. Um, but I don't think the capabilities of managing data are dead and i honestly don't think that they've really evolved as much as they've been made out to seem i think it's more just people turning capabilities that have been scripted by engineers into billion dollar features like billion dollar SaaS products is the thing that's changing and i think needing a separate contract and a separate SaaS solution for each of these that's probably going to be dead um, but needing the feature set as a capability somewhere 
I, I think a lot of the things in the in the data stack today are are still going to be relevant, highly relevant. It's just where do they live, and do you is it worth the time to stand up a whole different um, product and, and SaaS application? Well, because those expected outcomes don't change, right? Like the modern data set going away doesn't mean that uh, people are, are get, they're going to stop needing data management, oh. you know, and everything that falls under that umbrella or security or anything like that. Like these are just, and again, these are outcomes, right? I think that what, what happens is people mistake, and this happens in every industry, people mistake the, the marketing terms for the outcomes and, and so forth. But at the end of the day, you know, what I think what you're also hinting at is like um, uh, interoperability, right? Um, this is something yeah. Matt and I talk about a ton where there's no standards in the industry right now uh, yeah. for how tools should um, operate with each other. I mean, uh, I mean, you make APIs for a living or make, you know, make, make connectors. You, you tell me, have you... It, 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 has um have the uh you know tens of thousands of connectors out there uh, is there a very standard way of of connecting to any random API out there post office um, some government agency some company so so there are standards for API development right uh, somehow everyone ignores them like they ignore one piece of some standards like oh we do OAuth client credentials for authentication and then you look at it you're like no you didn't like that you just yep. made that up um. So like, there's no standards there. Number two, uh, protocols and definitions and data models are also not standardized. So when you think about like ticketing systems, like we integrate with a lot of ticketing systems, long tail ticketing systems, e-commerce ticketing systems, et cetera. You would think there would be something resembling a standard taxonomy for ticketing systems. There generally is. There's tickets and there's users and there's agents and there's whatever, but like, it's not as seamless as you'd expect. And I think in the data world, something like ELT, like ELT vendors have APIs. And the question is like, what is the standard way for another company to interface with an ELT company's APIs to kick off jobs, to monitor, et cetera. And I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. I don't think a ELT vendor should define it. I don't think one other vendor should define it, but I think as a market, we need to start coming to a consensus around what these standards are so that you can swap out your vendors and so that you can integrate them more seamlessly across platforms. Because right now what's happening in the, the data stack is one ELT vendor becomes partners with a transformation tool. They build a very strong one-off bespoke integration that like maybe it's not even via API, maybe it's whatever they set up themselves. And then someone else comes along and partners differently and they create a custom thing and everything's strung together with these very brittle integrations instead of a stand like some sort of standard. The, the the people I think that could create operability interoperability right now are either going to be the orchestrators like an Airflow or an astronomer, um, the modern data stack in a box tools like Kabul or Mozart, um, being able to say, hey, we do everything, but in reality, like we've just been really good at orchestrating the pieces of the puzzle. Um, someone like UiPath and the process layer coming down. Um, or and and or consultants just coming in and being like, hey, here is an open standard standard for how to think about interoperability. Like, uh, there are probably some other players or or someone like DBT, um, because they understand the pieces. But I, I don't think anyone has put a stake in the ground saying we are the we are gonna start solving the interoperability problem in a way that is not that are that is vendor agnostic. It's it's all um, deep partnerships instead of what's best for users and, and making it seamless. Yeah. I'll just follow on with that and say, I don't think portable has anything to worry about. I think <laughs> it will remain complicated to access APIs mm -hmm. for the foreseeable future. I mean, 10 years ago, there was all this talk about how we're all going to have APIs now and it's going to be magical and you'll be able to export data from any tool. And the reality with APIs is yes, you have rest, which is sort of this weird quasi standard, which many, many people have commented on. It's not really a standard. And some APIs basically are just many APIs actually are just a thin wrapper over the backend systems. And because every backend yeah. system is different, the data structure itself can mm -hmm. be quite different across these different systems. And even if you have a standard way of like pulling that data out, then what happens downstream? Well, that's a whole other set of problems to transform that into something coherent to try to join it across dis different vendors. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a very interesting situation. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we make five trend connectors, right? Custom yeah. five trend connectors. We do this all day and I, I can tell you that um every every connector is its own adventure it's 
as I'm sure you know very well, Ethan. It's, oh, yeah. it's, <laughs> let's get data from this data source. I'm 40 of them at this point. Yeah, right. I think you got some experience in this. Yeah, it's 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 a yeah, it's 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 fun. Um, actually, I'm going to ask you this. Just kind of a it's, these questions sort of overlap here. Chris asks, um, what problems? Uh, uh, what problem does the modern data set solve? And then JGS. Um, what is the most important uh, customer problem that is not solved today with a modern data stack that could be uh, uh, could be addressable by a uh, postmodern data stack? I guess, wh what the hell is a postmodern data stack? Let's talk about that real quick. So we we barely define the modern data stack. So yeah. let's, definitely, let's definitely dogpile on this. And, and so, so the postmodern data stack and why I'm currently using it as terminology for the market is I don't know what comes next. I don't know what the right building blocks are to call whatever comes after the modern data stack. I don't, all I know is everything doesn't fit into one nice bucket called the modern data stack. So to me, when I think about postmodern data stack, it's we're in this space right now of it's not the modern data stack, but we don't know what comes next and how to define it and how to organize it. So until then, I'm, I call myself postmodern data stack company. Um, so, so I, I don't think it's anything more than kind of a state of limbo of we need a better, we need a better path forward that actually represents what's taking place in the world. Um, and like, we need to move on. Um, so that's number one, what customer problem is not solved today with the modern data stack. I think the biggest customer problem is the journey, like is the journey of data evolution in the modern data stack. It is people don't talk about, you start here, you go here, you evolve into this. And I think that's the thing that we really need to hit home on is it is not just a set it and forget it buy this thing. And it solves all your problems. Like everyone's pitched that, whether it was data mesh or data lakes or data warehouses or data, whatever, like it was like, oh yes, we'll solve all your problems. But in reality, like the customer problem that's not being solved is like, we need to get people along the journey. Like there, there's entire ecosystem, there's entire companies that don't have any data that we need to train on how to get started. Then there's people that have a baseline that we need to um, help them understand what else they could be doing. And then there's the most advanced use cases that we need to, keep pushing the the cutting edge in terms of what, what people can do with data. I think as Chris Tab calls it to, uh, he calls it the Marmite data stack or something like that. It's like, <laughs> I think the, the whole thing is like people either like Marmite or they absolutely hate it. Um, so if you're in the audience and you, uh, you have an opinion on Marmite, let us know we'll more specifically let Chris know. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's interesting. The postmodern, I like the uh, postmodern term too, because uh, postmodernism uh, implies that it could be anything. And so, um, cause you know, postmodernism is just, um, definitions are very, um, loose. And so, uh, it's like my kids letting my dog in. Um, but yeah, I mean, kind of switching gears and what, what, I guess kind of zooming out and, you know, trying to predict the future in a very unknowable environment. Uh, I know Matt hates the, the word prediction. Um, uh, so, um, give us, give us your prediction of what, what, what was the data, data set look like in five years or give us your hope. So my, so my hope, and I, 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 so, so my hope is that whether it's a data warehouse or whatever this thing becomes data, data lakes, data warehouses, data, whatever, all converging and merging into processing engines, um, whatever that becomes, you should be able to ingest data from thousands of systems, pretty much any system you ever want to pull data in, whether it's an API, a file, database, webhook, whatever. You should be able to get all that data into one place. You should be able to turn it into an enterprise data model, understand your customers, your orders, your returns, your referrals, your whatever's happening inside your organization seamlessly, ideally in real time. Be able to then build dashboards on top of that. Like a big part of why people use data is they want to make better strategic decisions with data. So they build dashboards. Um, so you should have that powered by all those systems you're pulling in and you should be able to automate your workflows. So when you think about the data stack today, whether it's the modern data stack or the postmodern data stack or whatever, we're starting to get into the world of process automation. Reverse ETL started this trend. We're still very, very early. And I don't believe the data stack as we discuss it here has a right to play in the automation world yet because there's not enough connectivity to compete with Trey, Workado, Zapier, MuleSoft, any of these companies that all have thousands of systems they can string data together through. Um, but in five years, I think we'll have enough connectivity in scalable near real-time, if not real-time systems to process the data into valuable insights. 
dashboards we can build, and then the ability to push that data back out to automate workflows in effectively real time. So what that allows you to do is instead of having your analytics environment that's used for dashboards, maybe you are reverse detailing a little bit of data somewhere, you should be able to use the same exact data to power every workflow inside your enterprise. Um, and then what you can do is in one centralized place, you can actually organize not just your data, but also your process logic around how do you, um, what's the customer lifecycle look like? Not just from a dashboard and conversion funnel perspective, but also from a push notification and email and support ticketing perspective. Mm -hmm. All of that should be piped into and out of a centralized processing engine uh, seamlessly and at scale. And you should have one lens into all the enterprise data uh, in your organization. That's interesting. I mean, it kind of fits with this notion that Matt and I um, you know, talk about in our book. Um, the last chapter of the book, we you know we talk about what, what comes next after the modern data stack. It's something we call the live data stack. You know what it, what it is is it's what we're seeing right now is um, I think the a lot of the processing logic is actually going to move back to the application layer. Um, you know from the app itself or, or you know basically a source um, with more real time uh, feedback loops between applications and um, whatever you're going to do with data. But but a sense of uh, but also a strong push towards automation really like stuff that you look at dashboards right right now. It's like a lot of these questions that you use dashboards for reports should just be automated. Like oh. you know like what and when type questions. These are the things that we we point out where it's like what happened or when did this happen? Like if you're gonna take an action on this knowledge, automate it. Um, and then yeah. it's a lot of analysts focus on the why type questions, like causal type stuff, which is what they really should be doing in the first place. I, I think that the the world of a, you know, sort of dashboard monkeys is hopefully, um, you know, changing uh, for the better. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, and what this implies though is like tight integration, you know, across, um, you know, the, the data life cycle, um, but, but yeah, because right now it seems like there's there's definitely it, it, the data warehouse sort of sitting at the center of the universe of all this stuff is just sort of an ill fit for real time, so, um, you know, an application based stuff. And you, and you can see this starting to happen. I mean, like Unistore, um, you know, what Snowflake announced, I think, is a really um, cool move forward with this um, this recognition that um, why why do you need this sort of a batch oriented world? um when everything is moving fast i mean druid's been doing this for years obviously in other technologies but um you know i think that's sort of the next evolution as well is just things are going to be faster um, whether it's um, you know heuristic automations uh, machine machine learning based automations and so forth i don't know do you have any thoughts on that uh would you ask me or matt oh i asked matt yeah oh, okay <laughs> I, I mean I, I think in general part of what's happening so we talk about the cap theorem, right? And there actually are ways to get around the cap theorem. And specifically, you get around the cap theorem by having multiple databases to serve different purposes that are integrated with each other. I mean, that's fundamentally how data warehousing works, right? Like you have a source database where you're doing transactional workloads and everything is highly, highly consistent. And then you ship that data out to a target so these databases can satisfy very different constraints. And I think what we're starting to see now, even with systems like Druid, Druid is really in multiple databases under the hood that are working in concert. And so now Snowflake is starting to offer that capability. Google has offered this capability for a bit as well. With single like, store. Big query streaming, yeah. single store. And so I think what's going to happen is this stack is going to be very, very simplified so that for the most part, it's just automated, right? And it doesn't mean that fun it, behind the scenes, your transactional database is not actually your analytics database. But to the user, it's going to look a lot like that, where you'll have different levels of consistency and different query types that you could run. And they're actually running on different systems. And there's going to be a cost to this, but just the team simplification that comes with the automation and managed services is going to make a dramatic difference in your ability to deploy these things. Um, even, even with Imply and Druid, the problem with Druid, if you want to manage it yourself, is it's super, super complicated. Like there are just so many different open source components that you have to orchestrate, manage. And when it's a SaaS product, though, that's taken care of for you. And suddenly it's like this magical box. So that's what I'm excited to see. Um, what I will add to that is, you know, data is still really, really hard, which is something we've been talking about this entire conversation. No matter what tool stack you use, data itself is really, really hard. And so those those problems don't go away because of next generation of tools. I, I think we need to watch out for that kind of magical thinking, whatever we choose to call this next generation of data stack. Well, so. data has always been hard, right? But it's funny because yep. the same questions that we've been talking about for 30 years, I think there's uh, Ben Rogjan had a post about... Um, 
he was talking to people at Snowflake Summit about churn and why we still can't define churn and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, but this is yeah. the same problems that I've seen yes. for 20 plus years in this game. Yeah. You know, and, and when you talk to people who have been in the game longer, it's the same questions they've been dealing with. So I don't think this magically goes away with tools. Um, you know, I, we all, we've, we tried everything under the sun with processes too. So I don't, I don't have an answer for this. So, but. Total. Let me add a, so in, no, in, please in, do. In, in addition to the database aspects there, um, the, the just described, there's some fascinating things in the API world that I think will, if you think about everything as a centralized processing environment for data, if there is a way to do that, um, there's kind of two nuances that come into play with business applications, not databases. Number one, there are a lot, we deal with a lot of long tail APIs. There are a lot of long tail API based systems that you cannot pull data from in a real-time capacity. They don't have webhooks and they don't have a change data capture endpoint and they don't have a way of extracting incremental data. What that means is people talk about real-time and the ability of processing data like in milliseconds. It does not matter for probably 90% of the business applications because you still have to pull the data on a cadence and you're still rate limited. So that's one interesting nuance of yep. when you pick tools like Ideally, you should be able to pick the tools that have great APIs that you can pull data from quickly. But a lot of people think the change data capture real-time implications of databases work nicely in the API-based business application world. They do not. No. Um, so that's that's one consideration. The other thing that I find fascinating, because we're building our company this way, we have a lot of um, we have a lot of business applications that we use portable to ELT into our data warehouse, and we can process them and use them to power stuff. Um, is I believe a lot of business applications are not going to, I know, Joe, you said that a lot of logic would live in the application layer. I'm curious if you're talking about the business application layer or kind of like the product application layer. I think both. I think the semantic layer right now, the metrics layer is in the absolute worst spot, which is um, you're dealing with metrics after the after they've uh, been defined and you're just reacting. And that, so where it sits right now is a data warehouse and maybe the BI layer, but I think it's absolutely stupid. It needs to exist at the application layer. So... So I, I let's let's say I disagree with that. Uh, and here's and here's why. So I believe you'll have a processing layer, and I believe you'll be able to pull in data from your business application. So you have your CRM system, your ticketing system, and your product, your three core systems. Mm -hmm. And today you can have a lot of your workflows and logic live in your ticketing system. What I believe is the ideal state here is you load all that data on a recurring basis, or ideally in real time, into a data warehouse. And, or a processing environment, whatever it is called. And you create a data model that is agnostic of the upstream system. So if you use Zendesk or Freshdesk or whatever tool, it should not matter. You should have a data model in a processing environment that can ingest one, two, or either of those systems um, and use it for downstream dashboards and workflows. I think a lot of the business applications become effectively thin layers for CRUD input and output instead of heavy logic-based process, processing environment. So like right now we use Zendesk to collect user input from like, I could swap it out tomorrow for Google form or for Typeform or for Freshdesk mm -hmm. and still get the same dashboards. And over time, still get the same automations as long as we have our processing environment and data modeling set up correctly to bake more of the logic into how we process the raw data agnostic of what application it's coming from. If you can do that, I think your tech stack becomes unbelievably modular and robust in a way in which putting logic in applications cannot compete. I, I think it's more of a question of the location of where you're defining the metrics, right? So right now, semantic layers or basically, um, you know, it, it reads it works with the data warehouse, which is the absolute, like the absolute almost um, downstream place right now, except for the dashboard. And I suppose maybe we're talking about the same thing where you need, you need more of an upstream wrapper or a definitions layer where it's like, no matter how we define it, um, you know, it's, um, I can feed multiple sources with whether it's a data warehouse, whether it's a, a, you know, a direct dashboard, a spreadsheet, a machine learning model that way. Um, and so I think it, it, it exists as close to upstream as possible, whether or not you're ingesting from API whether or not it's baked into the application code itself. I think that's that's what um, I'm arguing for is, is totally. that. So just because, I mean, if you if you look at it from a process standpoint, just value stream map it out. I used to do this stuff all the time, and it makes my brain bleed when I see things. You're trying to correct errors after they've already happened. Yep. That's I just... Think, 
bad. When it comes to how people think about data right now, I think a lot of people are thinking about it as you have your raw data comes in, then you have some transformed version of that. So it's like you have a QuickBooks data comes in, then you create a general ledger, and then you create cash flow statement, balance sheet, whatever. Um, and then you have your dashboards and your metrics. And I think instead of thinking about your insights and your metrics after the transformation, I think people really need to be thinking about the upstream data model. Yeah, I agree. Agnostic of QuickBooks. It needs to be useful as a data model for QuickBooks and Zero and your other accounting solutions. And it needs to then be transformed and mapped into a general ledger, which then feeds the other ones. And I agree to your point. It needs to be as upstream as possible while still being application agnostic. If yep. you can get that right, then all you have to do is you can load your QuickBooks data and map it into that taxonomy. And then you could swap it out for zero and load it into that taxonomy, still get the transformations, still get the dashboards and the insights and the, the things downstream. But even like when you look today at how most people are doing transformation, it's coupled directly with your source. It's coupled directly with where the data came from. Mm -hmm. And as far upstream as possible, decoupling everything else from the actual source of data gives you unbelievable flexibility to swap things out, which I think as vendors grow and die over the coming years, which will be happening. Um, and as new technologies evolve, uh, it gives you unbelievable uh, modularity and flexibility too. Well, yeah, especially as you're dealing with more streaming data too, because the biggest question I have is there's no um, uh, data modeling for streaming is like really a thing that nobody, at least as far as I've talked to, I talk to a lot of people, they don't talk about. We're just like, I oh, just assume the source, the source is correct and just forget about it. I'm like, yep. I don't know. Um, Kind of switching gears a bit, though, you, you talk about uh, um, startups and companies and stuff, and uh, you know you just recently raised money yourself. I'd like, and I think you have some interesting thoughts in the startup ecosystem too. Um, maybe spend the last uh, ten minutes talking about that. Totally. Uh, where do you, where do you want to start? Where do you want to start? Um, I think it's evolved a lot in the last year. Um, when so uh, we we looked at fundraising last August, and everyone was all in on open source, free, hire all the people you can ever imagine, developer advocates, grow your ecosystem community. Revenue is significantly later. And today that's a fundamental, like Sequoia and YC just put out posts effectively being like, do not do that. Like that is the wrong approach. Um, like save money, like capital efficiency, that, those, that type of model. And I think a couple things, number one, founders of startups should know how they want to run their business. Like you should be confident in how you want to run your business and like doing a hard switch from one to the other is painful for founders. It's painful. It's really painful for employees, especially with layoffs. Uh, and it's, it's your business to run. Like you are accountable as the founder of your business for how you run your organization and what values you have. So that's number one. Um, it makes for a fascinating fundraising environment, um, because it's changed what people are looking for, um, or not looking for anymore. Um, what else is going on in the startup ecosystem right now? Um, the data, like, yeah. So those are my those are some high level high level points to start with. What What do you think has the attitude toward open source shifted at all in the last even maybe two months? I don't. So when I think about open source right now, so there, there's a couple scenarios where open source make a lot makes a lot of sense. If you are trying to sell into the enterprise, but don't have the reputation and the logos to do so, you need a way of having people use your product before you have the right to sell to them. If you try and sell someone a cloud-hosted SaaS solution and they are a Fortune 500 company or a healthcare company or international, they cannot buy your solution until you've either raised crazy amounts of money, you've gone through every audit you can imagine, and you have 10 of their competitors' logo. That makes sense for open source as long as you have a path to monetize. Um, I think there's a, a lot of open source technology and companies out there today that are using it as a funnel to get users for a cloud product, not realizing that it's not the same buyer. A lot of people that use open source data technologies are finance companies, healthcare companies, and people outside the US that cannot buy a SaaS solution. So I think, not that I don't think people realize that, I don't think people cared up until recently, like up until recently, a lot of the open source solutions were like, yes, we're going to monetize this one day. And the market just flipped a switch and they're like, no, 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 like you're going to monetize it today. Um, 
And in that world, you realize the drop-off in an open source community in the data world, a, a very large portion is not in the US because they need a solution and they can't buy cloud products in most scenarios. A number is going to be finance and healthcare that just won't pay you for this stuff. And then you're left with whatever's left. So it's one of those things where I don't think, I think we're still early enough in the open source data ecosystem to not have a good answer of does it work or not um, outside of databases. Like databases are great because they're these, it's one very core system that you need lots of eyes on to make sure it is robust. As you get into more fragmented technologies, I think, I think it changes entirely. Yeah, we, we, in this last couple of years, we've seen this insanity, I'll, I'll call it insanity, I'll just call it that, where <laughs> VCs were focused on things like GitHub stars and Slack channel membership. And for that business model, if your business model is just to have a lot of GitHub stars, then open source is fantastic. I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of open source, but I feel like where we see success with open source is as a component or a feature. In other words, who are the most successful companies that built off of open source? Well, like Google, Amazon, Facebook, except they're not open source vendors. They use tons and tons of open source as a component of these massive platforms. Yep. And I feel like if you can do something similar where maybe you have like some core open source, but then you have a really nice SAPS platform that expands on that, that can actually monetize and not just get a lot of GitHub stars, that, then you can be oh. successful. Yeah, I, I would say it's... Um... I mean, we always, we always talk about Charlie Munger's quote, uh, you know, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. And I just think the, the incentives right now have been, um, um, well, let's talk about what, what, it, what is a business? What does a business do, right? Um, a business, uh, I think in a traditional sense, does things like it makes money, uh, maybe makes these weird things called profits, um, you know, and I so forth. Nice. What's that? I don't know what that is. You don't know that? Well, you'll find out soon. Um, <laughs> pre-revenue. <laughs> yeah, pre-revenue pre in the, uh, the old Silicon Valley uh, episode there. Um, and so I think that there's been a lot of incentives to have this sort of a facsimile of what a, uh, a data or tech startup should look like, right? Like I, I talk to people in the Bay Area all the time and, you know, they're, they're, they're younger people too, um, you know, no knock on that, but they haven't, this is like the first jobs, but these tech companies. And it's like their idea of a business is, oh, we'll raise a bunch of money. And, you know, we'll, we'll, um, you know, hire like crazy, uh, you know, um, you know, maybe make revenue, uh, you know, but then eventually sell it. And I think that's the idea of a business. And I think what, what's been lost on people and what they're about to find out in a very harsh way is, um, you know, these, uh, these sort of, um, phony metrics really, um, aren't going to amount to much, uh, you know, when you have to do things like weird things like pay payroll, um, you know, and actually go out there and hustle and make a sale. So that's, so I think what's happened is the people are just not used to basically what the, the harsh reality they're about the face is, which you're going to have to go out there and like, as you say, sell like now, you, yeah. you have to. I, I think the reason why investors invest in companies that don't have revenue or in companies that aren't profitable is because there should be a path to get there. If you don't have revenue, Someone can give you money as long as there's a clear path to get your revenue. If you have revenue, but you're not profitable, you should at least someday, like you should, if you raise a hundred million dollars, you should know that there is a path to become profit. Like that there is a path to the next step. And I think a lot of people have just been taking the money as a way, as like a free way of punting the problem till later, instead of saying, I'm doing this because I expect to get back to profitability or I expect to get back to a certain revenue threshold. And that's when you end up in, um, that's when, when you end up with problems. It kind of, I think Joe, I saw that you, uh, rock climb. I'm not a big rock climber, but it's one of those things of like, you never just jump and hope that there's a thing, something to catch onto. Like speak for yourself. I, I, <laughs> like, like you at least know there's something you're jumping for. Like the, the, there's a chance you can get there. And I think a lot of people have literally just been like jumping and being like, yeah, we'll find there. Hopefully there's something for us to catch out there. And it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous one. Oh yeah, no, I, I think a lot of people are trying to like, uh, you know, it's like if everyone watched the uh, Free Solo movie with Alex Honnold, where he threw his clothes out cap, like, yeah. hell yeah, let's all go try that um, out of the gate, not even know how to climb. I mean, it's, yeah. it's going to be carnage. Like I always teach my kids when I take them climbing, I'm like always, if, especially if we're bouldering, which is not using ropes, I'm like, find the, you got to figure out your down climb first. Don't just go up to the top uh, yeah. without an exit plan, right? And know and find your route as well. Don't just like blindly huck for things. So yeah, I think it's true. very analogous to what's going on in the tech world right now. You mm -hmm. need to have a plan and path and understand what you 
as leaders of business can do as a next step? Like, are you physically able to free solo in like Yosemite? Like, probably not. It's like, understand what you, what your threshold is for. for well, building. And the thing is too, it's, it's like, I think there's been a lot of pressure on companies to become these billion dollar unicorns or decacorns or whatever. And it's like, here's the reality. Not every company is or should be a billion dollar company. Totally. Right. Like there, I think what I'd focus on is like, what, how, you know, if you have an idea, what, what is the best version of this company that you can make, uh, you know, in the marketplace? It doesn't imply that it's going to be a billion dollars though. It might be, you know, hundred million, but is it a very profitable, very, you know, longstanding business? I mean, as an investor, those are the kinds of things I'd be looking for. But again, my, my incentives are different than maybe, uh, you know, if I raise a VC fund, I, you wouldn't have the luxury of saying that you have to get these exits. That's how it is. But then yeah. these things also, as you say, in a very short amount of time, it's interesting just how you went from a hot to cold environment where people it's like, you know, grow your team really fast. Uh, let's, let's try and like burn as much money as humanly possible just to grow, 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 grow. Then all of a sudden the brakes run. It's like, well, uh, that thing we told you, just forget about that. Now you have to do something different like today. So, oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I, I kind of wonder how VCs are going to behave in this environment because there's a lot of like social pressure to get these unicorn exits where in reality, and I think you kind of alluded to this earlier, Ethan, in reality, financially, fundamentally, for a lot of these companies, it's going to make sense to just take the $100 million exit to just sell to a big player like Google or Snowflake for $100 million to say, yeah, it's not as much as we hoped for, but we actually made some money off of this. Um, that's yeah. where it's, you, or you can drive it into the ground with, you know, with no yeah. revenue, a valuable it's, future. It's not to say that it's not important. I mean, there's been some great achievements from yeah. companies that have raised you know, seed rounds with no revenue and so forth. And you know, companies that didn't, um, you know, generate profits uh, and so forth. I, I just think that in, in, as an aggregate, it just the, the incentives and I talk to startup founders, it just seems um, uh, it just seems like a lot of machinations you're having to go through. Whereas if, if like like yourself, you, you just went ahead and just did weird things like make sales before you raise money that, you know, it's, it's strange, but yeah. <laughs> let's channel what. <laughs> Let's channel two of Alan Greenspan's famous sayings. There's the decade of greed and there's irrational exuberance. And I, I feel like we've seen a lot of the same things in the last decade. And the question is, how, how do we, do we exit from that? You know, what, what comes after? I'm, I'm actually looking forward to it in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, the, 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 the great times when you have free money floating around is, is great. Um, it's fun. But the thing is like that party ends at some point. Yeah, because it does. This has always happened, and it always will. And so, I think you just need to know. You need to just really understand like what environment you're in, and just play accordingly. But just know that, you know, the good times ain't gonna last forever, and, and nor are the bad times. Like no, nobody wants well, this downturn. Also, it's yeah. It's, so, it's it, there. It's the bad times in in a lot of respects. Layoffs, not good. Um, yeah. Inflation, not good. Um, but when you think about it, like I don't know, like building a company when you have to make when you have to like actually generate revenue and become profitable. Like it's a fun challenge. It's a puzzle. Um, and that's the part that I get really excited about. That's why we're building portable. That's why we've built yeah. it the way we're building it is because building, getting to $3 million in revenue when you've raised 60 is an easier problem to solve than getting to hundreds of thousands of dollars without raising any money. So like to me, I find the, um, It'll be a fun challenge. I think you'll you'll see a lot of people really enjoy the problems that they get to solve in today's ecosystem. Yeah. Whereas before, a lot of people were like loving the happy hours and the the travel, and like I, I love that stuff too. But uh, same, <laughs> it's a different it's a different system. It should be should be exciting. Yeah, it's awesome. So uh, for people who want to learn more about you and what you're doing at Portable, how would they uh, how would they do that? Uh, so I'd say two things. Number one, portable.io. You can sign up for a free account, start moving data, explore. If you ever need a connector, reach out. We can build these things in a matter of hours or days. Number two, I post five to six days a week on LinkedIn. Uh, and feel free to connect or follow me. And um, you can see all of my uh, posts and perspectives and opinions um, in your in your feed. And you got some great perspectives too. I think is what Matt and I appreciate about uh you know your your posts and your ideas is you're just you're willing to put yourself out there. I think you're willing to um you know stir some controversy too, which is which is well needed in this industry. So uh, totally, I love the, I love the discussions. Like I I change my perspectives. I for sure. learn from people like Chris and in uh, the conversations we have, and um that that's why I enjoy it is is all the engagement and the the learning that comes along. That's with cool. It. Speaking of learning, um. Shameless plug for our book, Fundamentals of Data Engineering. Uh, it's coming out soon. I 
heard maybe early July. Um, so uh, pre-order on Amazon. Uh, if you have an O'Reilly account, you can already read it online. The pre-release version, obviously it's not finished yet, but it's getting closer. Um, smash the like button on O'Reilly.com if you like it. Um, give it a great review on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. Uh, I think this um, getting a lot of a lot of attention on this. I think it's love it. Even Matt and I are a bit surprised. So you know. Yeah, seems like there was even an even bigger need for something like this than we thought. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm gonna get my copy and I'll I'll write a review as well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and Matt will go sign it for you. So <laughs> awesome, cool. Um, kind of wrapping up. Uh, Seattle Data Guy, what's up, Ben? He says, uh, "Wait, no more happy hours." In reference to, uh, yeah, sorry, Ben. Um, but I mean, I think people are going to be drinking away their sorrows. So it's going to be a cash bar going forward, Ben. You can still we'll still have happy hours. Everyone has to pay for their own drinks. Yeah, actually, I saw Ben a couple of weeks ago in Denver. It was pretty cool. We went to this um, place, uh, Improper City. I think it was. I can't remember, but it was a coffee bar that ter- somehow also was a bar, and so it was actually pretty interesting. So I, don't know, I thought it was pretty cool. But um, yeah, what's up, Ben? Uh, good to see you. Cool. All right. Well, next week uh, we have Laszlo Stranger. Um, he's a uh, um, I, I think he's your equivalent, but in the ML ops world or the ML yeah. world, he's he, he posts some really. Um, enlightening things uh, so really looking forward to that conversation this friday we have uh, neil nicolaisen on as well on the friday show he's a uh, longtime cio um uh, thought leader in digital transformation so it's a it's gonna be a great chat so anyway i hope the audience uh, has a great week thanks for the uh, great questions and comments and we'll see you next time so totally. bye-bye see you yep. take care